Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. In our study of 2 Samuel, we are in 2 Samuel chapter 16. And if you've been with us, you know David is in a serious rough spot in his life at this point. Since he had an affair with Bathsheba and he murdered her husband named Uriah, things have gone from bad to worse for him. Last week, things became totally unhinged. His oldest son, whom David, you remember, had just freed and set free from the crime of murdering his older brother. As soon as he was set free, he set about to try and plan his own father's murder, to throw, overthrow his father from the throne. He spent four years meticulously and carefully planning the death of his father to steal his father's kingdom. Think about that. That is a pretty sick, demented, really bad son. Four years to plan his own father's murder. This guy's worse than Hamas, isn't he? Now, last week, we saw Absalom put his plans into action. After four years of chariot riding and of hand-kissing the people and schmoozing up to them and constantly saying, if only I was in charge, things would be so much better. Absalom proclaimed himself king at Hebron. He activated his sleeper cells. We saw that he had planned throughout all the towns and villages. And there was a national uproar. And he seems like he successfully pulled off his national conspiracy. David, we left, he's running for his life. David left Jerusalem wide open in anticipation of trying to get away from his own son before he arrived at Jerusalem. Last week, as David was running for his life, we saw at the very end of chapter 15 that he met three friends who were so good and kind to him at those times. Remember, the first one was Atai the Gittite. The guy had just arrived with his soldiers just the day before, but yet he was loyal to David. He was an island of loyalty when he was, David was surrounded by a sea of treachery, the important parts of a loyal friend. We also saw two other friends that were loyal, uh, Abiathar and Zadok, who were the priests. They agreed, out of loyalty and love for David, to go back into Jerusalem and set up a spy network for David so he could get information back out of the city of what was happening. That, they were risking their own life to do that for David. And then, of course, we also saw Hushai, the archite, who was a friend of David. He agreed to once again risk his life and go back into the city and pretend to be a friend of Absalom, pretend to be on Absalom's side, but in reality, he was risking his life to be a mole, to try and thwart the counsel of an extremely wise man who was on Absalom's side, a man named Ahithophel. So last week, chapter 15 ended with three friends of David and how they supported him. But when we come to chapter 16 this week, we find three foes of David. But as we will see, 
even though they are at work against David. And they're enacting evil plans trying to thwart David. Evil plans which they have freely chosen and that they are completely responsible for. God, who's larger and in charge, even than evil people, he's larger than evil plans, God takes those plans and he uses them for his good purposes in David's life and ultimately in his kingdom. And I think that's the big message we need to take away from this morning. That's not just true for David, but it's also true for you and me. You and I have people who sometimes have planned evil against us, who have done hurtful and wicked things to try and destroy us. But God is much bigger than their evil plans, isn't he? In fact, God is so big, he's capable of taking the evil plans that people have freely chosen against us and taking them and turning them around, using them for our good and also for his good purposes in our lives and to grow his kingdom. And that's what we're going to find today. So if you have your outlines, we'll start on the top. We're going to meet with this guy. The first guy we meet in this chapter is Ziba. I call him the con man that God used, because that's what he is. He's a con man. David and his followers had little time to prepare to run for their life. Uh, they were completely unprepared, obviously, for Absalom's coup. We know that they were escaping into the Judean wilderness. And I was doing some research this week, and I, we, we read Judean wilderness, and we think the woods. That's not what it, the woods, that's not what the Judean wilderness looks like. One of the books that I was reading had this as a picture of what it looked like. And here's a, that's the Judean wilderness. Now, I don't know, I checked that picture out for a while. You can look at it for, for a while too, but I don't see a come and go in there anyplace. There's no quick star, and it's missing a super Walmart. In other words, when David and his people are heading into the wilderness, folks, they are heading into the desert with almost no supplies, without food as they're running for their life. And as they're leaving town, they've just crested over the Mount of Olives. Look who shows up. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, that's the summit of the Mount of Olives, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, a hundred bunches of raisins, and a hundred of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. The ESV says they, Ziba met them with a couple of donkeys. The NIV says Ziba met them with a string of donkeys, trying to get the idea here. This couple doesn't mean just necessarily limited to two here. And you know what Ziba's done? He's packed lunch for everybody. And you're saying, wait a minute, I thought you said this is about David's enemies. Well, Ziba doesn't look like an enemy. He looks like he's a good guy. He packed lunch for everybody as they went into the desert. But that's sort of the point. Sometimes your enemies try to trick you, and then they come across looking just like friends. But let's remember who Ziba is. Ziba was the chief servant 
in Saul. That's King Saul's household. We first met him back in 2 Samuel chapter 9. And David was looking, was there any remaining sons for anybody that's remaining from King Saul's household that he could show kindness to? Specifically, anyone from Jonathan's household. And Ziba at the time was enriching himself off of King Saul's massive farms because he's large and in charge. But there was somebody left who was in hiding in obscurity in the desert, a cripple named Mephibosheth who was Jonathan's son. A little shady here. Like if Ziba knew about him, why didn't Ziba ever go get him and restore to him what was rightfully his to begin with? David sort of scratched his head at that time. And David took Mephibosheth back and restored him as head over King Saul's lands. So Ziba has a little bit of a history of being shady, a little bit of a history of being underhanded. And David knows that. So he sees all of this stuff and he instantly questions Ziba. The king said to Ziba, like, why have you brought these? The Hebrew literally means, what are you doing with these things? In other words, does all this food belong to you? Do you, Ziba, have the right to give it away? He's asking, did you just steal and offer to me all of Mephibosheth's stuff? But, like a politician, you know, politicians, you ask them a question, but they give you a different answer that has nothing to do with the question. That's what Ziba does. David asked, what about this stuff? Whose is it? Where did it come from? And Ziba answers this way. Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. So Ziba avoids the question and says, oh, by the way, this stuff will be really useful to you as you head into the wilderness. So is Ziba being generous? Is he being kind? Or is there something a little underhanded going on? David's still wondering. So now he asks again, but he asks much more directly. The king said, and where is your master's son? In other words, and where is Mephibosheth? And that gave Ziba the opportunity to move from seemingly generous man to who he actually is, the con man. And he says this, Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Supposedly, Mephibosheth is in Jerusalem, and he's somehow claiming that now that David is running for his life, that Mephibosheth will become the king of the land. Now, before you go any further, let's put ourselves in David's shoes. You know David's had a really rough day at this point, like a majorly stressful day. He's unexpectedly running for his life. He's running for his life from his own son. He's running into the desert. I mean, if you think you've had a really bad day, I think your bad day is nothing compared to David's bad day at this point. 
He is majorly stressed. He is completely exhausted. He's totally tired. And when he hears that Mephibosheth, a man that he has shown so much kindness to, a man that he had eat at his own dining room table every day is somehow planning to replace him, he goes off. He just really goes off the handle at this point because David is angry. And he says this, And the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. By the way, you know you should never make a rash decision when you're angry. Anybody learn that one? Everybody ever learn that sometimes when you're angry, you turn around and say things you regret? That's David in this moment. He's stressed, he's exhausted, he's tired, he's angry, he's provoked, and he, in one sentence, strips all of the riches, the vast riches of Saul's lands and kingdoms off of Mephibosheth and gives them to Ziba. Now, Ziba is pretty excited about that, don't you think so? He responds with this, and Ziba says, Oh, I pay homage. Let me, ever, let me ever find favor in your sight. Oh, my Lord, the king. And it looks like at this point, Mephibosheth is the scoundrel who's supposedly trying to become king in David's place. And Ziba is the hero. But like I said, things are not always what they appear to be. Spoiler alert. David, by the way, will survive this attempt on his life by his son. David will later return to Jerusalem. And when he comes back into Jerusalem, guess who he sees? Mephibosheth. And we read about that in the 19th chapter. I'm going to read a little section of that reunion. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may Ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame, for he has slandered your servant to my lord the king. Folks, Ziba, in the account that we're reading, was lying through his teeth. Mephibosheth was not in Jerusalem, planning to all of a sudden become king in David's place. What he was doing was manipulating David with false information, taking advantage of David in his weakness. Ziba was a con man. He was an opportunist taking advantage of David's vulnerability and stressed out situation to manipulate David into doing something he should have never, ever done. Now here's a little lesson for us. Be careful about judging by appearances. I put that in your outline for you. When Ziba told David that Mephibosheth, was not, was, who was normally loyal to him, was actually completely against him, 
David should not have assumed the worst. He should have only assumed the best. There was never a time before this that Mephibosheth had been in any way disloyal or hurtful to David. The Bible requires us, folks, not to accept a charge against a person when we hear it unless we have the evidence of two or three witnesses. We are always supposed to assume the best about people, not when we hear something negative to start immediately assuming the worst about people. Look what the, the Bible says in Deuteronomy 19. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. That's not a charge finalized. That's a charge even established. You assume the best, not the worst when you hear something about someone. Paul says this to Timothy, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So David should not have jumped to conclusions and made hasty decisions like he did. What he should have done is said, thank you for the stuff, Ziba. I don't know if what you're saying about Mephibosheth is true, but if I return, and when I return, I'll look into it, and then we'll find out, and if there are decisions to be made, I will make them at that time. I won't make them in my angry moment. I won't make them in my pressured moment, because chances are I'll make the wrong decision and regret doing what I just did. Now, folks, simply this applies to us, doesn't it? How many times have we found ourselves stressed out, have we found ourselves tired and worn out and we hear somebody who says something about us or we hear about somebody who's done something hurtful? It could be somebody in the church. It could be somebody at school. It could be somebody at work. And our mouth opens up and we say something we regret. Or we make a rash judgmental decision and we regret doing what we did. Take this to heart. Only on the evidence of two or three eyewitnesses shall a charge be even established. Because there's plenty of people out there who will like to gossip, who will like to turn things, who will like to shade things to ruin relationships between people. That's just the way it works. Now, there's another aspect to this that I think we should point out. And this is my point B here. God can take what is intended for evil and use it for good. This is the theme that ties all of these three stories together in this chapter. Ziba, with all of this stuff, really intends it for evil. He intends it to be manipulative. He intends to deceive David. And in he actually gets away with it. But the reality is that David is heading into the Judean wilderness, which is the absolute desert as he's running for his life. He doesn't have food for himself and for others. He needs food. God provided for him that food, didn't he? He provided him that food 
by means of a con man. So God can take even evil people with their manipulative motives and even their evil motives, and yet he can turn that around and use that in a good way for his people and his purposes. Have you ever had somebody do something hurtful to you in your life? You ever had somebody do something really difficult to you in your life? And at the time, you're like, God, how could you ever let that happen? But now you look back on it. And you're like, you can see God's fingerprints in that. Taking what somebody intended for evil and actually turning it around and using it for good, guiding you and protecting you. The example that comes to mind is Joseph. Joseph in the Old Testament when his own brothers sold him into slavery into Egypt. Imagine that, your own brothers selling you in slavery, going away in chains, and your brothers waving goodbye. But he later realized that the evil that his brothers freely chose and which they're fully responsible for was overturned by God and used for his purposes to bring Joseph to Egypt for the saving of many lives even the saving of his own brother's lives. Isn't it good that God is even bigger than the evil things that happen to us? And that God can take those things that people intend for evil and turn around and use them for good, just like he did for Joseph, but also like he's doing for David right now, providing for what he needs as he goes into the wilderness. That brings us to our next little mini-story. That's a guy named Shammai, and I call him the potty mouth with a purpose. Hopefully you got a little laugh out of that one, but it's true. He's a potty mouth. Verse 5, when David came to Barim, there came out a man from the, house of the, from the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shammai, the son of Gera, and as he came, he cursed continually. He likes to swear a lot. Bahrain, by the way, is only about a mile and a half outside of Jerusalem. Um, we've heard this little phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. You know that's not true, by the way, right? Not true at all. In all the divorce counseling I've done in 30 years of being a pastor, the divorces have never been about somebody using sticks and stones. It's always been about words, hasn't it? Things that they said to me that have hurt me, that I have a hard time letting go of. And this is what's going on. Here is Shammai, and he is going to use his words to hurt David as deeply as he possibly can. David is at his darkest hour, we know this, at his lowest moment, he is running for his life from his own son. And when he is down, this guy is going to kick him as hard as he can with his words. Now, the last time we read about somebody cursing David was actually all the way back with David and Goliath. Goliath was the last guy who cursed David. Did not end well for him. He ended up with a rock in the brain. And so you would think this would not be a good idea to have another guy cursing David. Another thing about Shammai, who is he? He was a relative of King Saul, and he had lost out in life when King Saul was, and his family was no longer in charge. And 
Shammai really blames David for Saul losing power. He blames David for all the troubles that he is experiencing in his life. And incidentally, I should also mention this. Shammai is not just mentioned in this passage. He's mentioned in, I think, about three other passages all the way into King Solomon's reign. And every single time he has mentioned this incident is brought back up. Now, Shammai seeks forgiveness for the words he will say. But I'll also tell you this. He gets forgiveness, but why he's forgiven, the words he has said are not easily forgotten. And what's a reminder? That words can be very hurtful. And even when people forgive you, it's hard for them to forget the things that were said. And that's what's going on with this guy. Now, he's not just cursing David continually. He's actually moving from cursing to throwing things. And he threw stones at David and all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men who were on his right hand and his left. So apparently this guy is sort of on the hillside and David and his men are a little bit in the valley and he's just lobbing things at him left and right, which you know he's completely out of control. That's not a good idea to throw rocks at the president when the Secret Service is surrounding him. It just will not end well. So that's what this guy is doing. But when you're angry enough, you're sure to forget that. Here's his cursing. And Shabbat said as he cursed, Get out! Get out! You man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all of the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you. You are a man of blood. Well, not a lot of respect here for the king. He's telling, get out, get out. He says, you are just a worthless man. Earlier in this text, the sons of Eli, remember those guys who were sleeping with women in the temple? They were called worthless men. Nabal was called a worthless man. He's putting David into the category of those people, extremely worthless people. It's a serious insult, especially to the king, God's king. And he also accuses him of being a murderer. You know, the answer is, why is Shammai accusing him of all these things? Shammai is convinced that David is behind the death of Saul and his sons and the overthrow of Saul's kingdom. If you've been with us for earlier studies, you know that absolutely is not true. The author of First and Second Samuel has been very clear that when Saul and Jonathan died in battle with the Philistines, remember David at the end of 1 Samuel was like 100 miles south? He had nothing to do with Saul's death. In fact, the opportunities when he had to kill Saul, remember he wouldn't touch him, I will not put my hand out against the Lord's anointed. Multiple chances David turned away from killing Saul. And when it came to Saul's army commander, Abner, Joab, independently killed Abner. David had nothing to do with it. When it came to Saul's final son, Ishbosheth, two men killed him, and they brought the head to David, 
But David had nothing to do with that death whatsoever. So David is completely innocent of Saul's death and the death of his family. But Shammai doesn't really care about that. He doesn't care about the facts. All he cares about is his opinion, what he feels to be true, what he wants to be true, actually in his mind is what is true, even though the facts aren't there to support it, which I think is a little important point for us. Some people want their opinion more than the facts, don't they? You guys ever see that? Oh, yeah. Now, I'm not trying to make a point one way or the other. There's nothing political about what I'm saying, but please understand this. I was thinking about this as I was studying this week, and I was watching a news exchange between uh, an Israeli Defense Force person and the person who was interviewing them, and you could tell the reporter was very one-sided, very pro-Palestinian. And the Israeli, they're talking about this bombing of the hospital in Gaza that you, we've all seen on the news. And the Israeli Defense Force guy was saying, hey, I'm sh I've shown you the video. I've shown you some of the audio. I I've shown you everything I can in the way of facts. But you just won't listen because you already have a preconceived conclusion about who did this. So you won't let, it doesn't matter what kind of facts I give you. You won't hear this. And I was thinking, that's Shammai, isn't it? The facts are out there. David had nothing to do with the death of Saul and his family. But that's not what Shammai cares about. Not the facts, just his opinion. But here is where it gets ironic. What Shammai is accusing David of is completely false. David had nothing to do with Saul's death. But the accusations of what he's done are completely true. David is indeed a worthless man because he had an affair with another man's wife. David is indeed a murderer because he killed Uriah when he was completely innocent. So the accusations are false. But what he's saying he, David had done, Shemai doesn't even know it. They're actually true. Now, this is interesting. As a result, David knew that he would um, have to face some judgment. Remember, like we learned some consequences for his sin. And everything that is happening to him right now with Absalom rising up is a direct result of judgment that God promised as a consequence for what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah. Remember this back in 2 Samuel 12? Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. His own son rebelling against him and trying to overthrow him is a con long-term consequence of his affair with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah. So Shammai is cursing him for the wrong things, but the accusations are exactly right. And David is sort of thinking, you know, maybe this is okay, because maybe I need to hear this, because maybe I am acting like a worthless man. Maybe I am a murderer. I need to absorb that. But David's um, soldiers sort of got tired of it. 
One of my said this, Then Abishai, the son of Zerui, who's a soldier, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. He's observed if he takes off somebody's head, they don't talk anymore. That's an easy way to quiet them. And here's the, the point I was making earlier. Sometimes God disciplines us in one area of life when we are rebelling in a different area of life. Verse 10, but the king said, what have I to do with you, sons of Zerubi? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, then who then shall say, why have you done so? In other words, David's realizing maybe God has told him to curse me. He's cursing me for the wrong reasons, but the accusations are right. And this whole thing with Absalom is a consequence of that particular sin. So maybe I need to hear this. Maybe I need to be humbled by this. Maybe I need to be rebuked by this. But isn't this sometimes what God does? We maybe have one area of our life over here where we're sinning. We're not being honest with the Lord. And God brings discipline into our life because he loves us, but he doesn't bring it into that direct area. He brings it into another area of our life to get our attention. And when that discipline hits us, we know in our heart, we know this is because God's trying to get my attention for this thing, even though the problems are coming in a different area. That's sort of the way God works. By the way, Psalm 119 verse 67 says this, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Part of this difficulty in David's life is to cauterize him from sin and bring him to repentance of his sin. The next point here, when hurtful words are spoken, we need to keep them in perspective. Verse 11, then David said to Abishai and to all of his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more may this Benjamite Leave him alone, let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. I know, Abishai, you want to go take his head off, but in the big perspective right now, what's far worse than a guy cursing me is my son trying to kill me. So let's not worry about a guy cursing us right now, because maybe I need to hear this, because I deserve it, because he's done. I'm doing actually the things that he said I've done. So, you know, let's just keep this in perspective. Point D, and when we graciously endure evil, God frequently repays with good. David ends with this. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, David says, and the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. David knew this about God. When his people face suffering that they did not deserve, when they're accused of things they have not done and they handle that graciously, they handle that kindly, they don't do what Abishai suggested, which is go over and take off people's heads. When they handle it graciously and they handle it kindly, many times God turns that time of blessing that they endured into a time of cursing that they endured into a blessing that comes from him. First Peter Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's, the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time 
he may lift you up. Or 1 Peter 4.19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator and continue doing good. It doesn't say that those who suffer then go take off somebody's head. No, you continue doing good and trust God and let him take care of things. And it ends with this. So David and his men went on the road while Shammai went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan and there he refreshed himself. In other words, this cursing wasn't just two minutes. It went on all day long. Let me show you the distance David had traveled. You can see Barim right there is right next to Jerusalem on the left-hand circle. There's the Jordan River. Shammai followed them almost all the way there, just reaming David for what he had done. That makes a bad day even worse, doesn't it? But... God was humbling him, and David knew it, and he needed to hear it. That brings us to our third person. I call him Ahithophel, the evil genius. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel with him. The lens of our camera shifts from David at the Jordan River and goes back to Jerusalem as Absalom and the men arrive. It says all the people are with him. There's a huge rebellion who have joined him. Then it says the men of Israel in addition. This is opposed to the men of Judah. So the men of the 10 northern tribes are with him. But more significant than all these vast numbers of men is one man. Ahithophel, as I said, who is the evil genius. He is the one who's going to be the key to the success or failure of this entire rebellion. Now, when we began, um, when we began, Absalom is meeting Hushai, which was David's friend who'd gone back to the city. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, and long live the king. Absalom was shocked, number one, that the city of Jerusalem was left abandoned, but he's even more shocked that David's friend was there waiting for him and saying, long live the king. We learned last week while Ahithophel switched sides. Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. So we had a bone to pick with David about this whole Bathsheba-Uriah incident, but Hushai was in a completely good relationship with David. There was no reason for him to switch sides. You and I know he switched sides to be a mole. Absalom does not know that at this point. But Hushai, to keep control of the conversation, begins with those words, long live the king. Now we know Absalom. He's got a little bit of a narcissistic personality, right? He's got a big, overgrown ego. So as soon as he hears, long live the king, who does he think those words are referring to? Himself. Hushai intentionally did not say which king he was referring to. Which king was he referring to? 
David. This guy is very crafty. You'll notice as we go through here. And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Let's look at the verse 18. Hushai says, no, I'm going to serve whom the Lord and all of his people and all the men of Israel has chosen. And what does Absalom think he's referring to? Oh, everyone's chosen me. You want to serve me, but notice what Hushai said. I'm going to serve the one the Lord has chosen and all the people has chosen. David was chosen by the people and by the Lord. Absalom was never chosen by the Lord. But because he's so egocentric, he completely misses that. Now this, verse 19. I'm not a real fan of the way the ESV translates it. I think the NASB translates it better to show you the subtlety that Hushai is doing, because he's doing everything not to lie, but at the same time, he's deftly deceiving Absalom. This is what the uh, NASB translation reads as. Besides, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son? As I have served in your father's presence, so I will be in your presence. In other words, I'm going to serve in your presence just like I served in your father's presence. But did Hushai say who he was serving? He's serving David in Absalom's presence. But Absalom, who's so egocentric, misses the whole thing, and it goes right by him. At that point, Absalom is satisfied that he has really a loyal guy. He has, oh, oh my time. Oh, I didn't know my time. I better hurry. Thanks for the kids to remind me. We're going to have to move quickly here. Then Absalom said to Ephel, give me your counsel. What should we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. Remember, David left 10 concubines to take care of the house. What could be more offensive, more disrespectful, more disgusting to your father than to go and rape 10 of his wives. Remember, Absalom was furious at his older brother for raping one sister. Now he's going to rape 10 of his father's wives. This is what the Bible says about this. If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his, father naked, his father's nakedness, both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. That's what Absalom's setting himself up for. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in all the sight of Israel. Folks, where did this all begin? It began with David on that very same roof, lusting after Bathsheba. Now, 
on that very same roof, 10 of David's wives are being raped by his own son. And by the way, the Bible says this is exactly what would take place. In verse 11 of chapter 12, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, that's Absalom, and I will take your wives before your eyes, and I will give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. David, what you did in private, the consequences is it's going to be done to your wives in public. Now, let me just give you some quick things as we get closer to the end here. God is bigger than man's evil purposes. Ahithophel's wicked plans were unwittingly fulfilling God's word. Isn't that true? What Ahithophel planned as evil against David, he was actually unwittingly fulfilling God's words. Point B, if God's words of judgment for David's sin prove true, and accurately true, doesn't that also mean that God's words of grace and forgiveness for David will also prove accurate and true? Then the last verse is this. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel, esteemed by both David and by Absalom. But here's the interesting thing. Ahithophel may be an evil genius, but who can take his evil plans and turn them around and use them for God's good purposes? God. Just like he took Shemai's cursing and actually used it as appropriate humility for David in that moment, just like he took Ziba's con man techniques and actually used it to provide for David in that moment. So God is large and in charge. You can even take those who are choosing to do evil and hurtful things to us, turn that around and use it as part of his good and helpful discipline for us and also his care and provision for us in ways we would never expect. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chapter. Even though it's about the foes that David had, it's often difficult to hear about our foes and how they freely choose to do evil and hurtful things to us. But I thank you that you can take evil plans that are against your people and evil plans that are even against your son. Turn those things around and use those for your good purposes. Just like when Judas freely chose to betray Jesus, you took that and spun that around that the betrayal of Jesus would lead to the death of Jesus to free us from our sin and to give us eternal life. Thank you for how you turn evil on its head in ways we would never, ever expect or imagine. You are so good to us beyond our we can imagine. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.